I want to show you a picture, a work of art this morning. Does anybody know what that uh, is a depiction of? No art history majors here? Come on. This is St. Paul uh, writing his epistles. It's uh, done in the 1600s by Valentine de Boulogne. Um, one interesting thing about this picture, I don't know if you can see it, but if you look at the table, you can actually see a reflection of his face looking up, which was pretty cool for 1600s. Um, the Apostle Paul, he did not look anything like that. Not one iota. <laughs> we don't know what he looked like. We, we have one description of the Apostle Paul uh, from some apocryphal writings. Um, this is what it says. Paul was a man of middling size and his hair was scanty and his legs were a little crooked. He was bow-legged and his knees were far apart. He had large eyes and his eyebrows met and his nose was somewhat long. Um, that's a pretty ugly description. Uh, um, so not much to look at. And evidently he didn't have much charisma. This is what Paul reports about what others said about his speaking, 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. For some say, remember, Paul is writing this. This is his report of what others say about him. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. <laughs> How would you like that to be your reputation as a speaker? <laughs> Paul is just this, this fascinating man, though. Uh, um, didn't have much charisma. From his writings, at times he seems pretty cranky and hard to get along with, but very driven. Um, I don't think we'd like him a whole lot. You know, he, he, I, I think he'd grate against us at times. But he changed his world. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, has to be one of the top five most influential people in history. He's the second most influential person in Christianity next to, to, to Jesus. He, he started this movement of the church um, that spread across the Roman Empire so that within 300 years, 50% of the Roman Empire were believers in Jesus. That happened because of Paul's missionary efforts in the churches that he planted and the people he trained. He authored 50% of the New Testament. So he's the, he's the best-selling author in the world because the Bible sells more than any place else, any, uh, any other book. I, I mean, just an amazing guy and, and an unbelievable evangelist. We have a lot to learn from the Apostle Paul. I don't know if you know this, but we live in the fifth largest mission field in the world, that's the United States. And in our particular community, uh, the need to hear the gospel is really great, far greater than other places in the country. About 85% of our community do not go to church, don't have a good understanding of the gospel or a good understanding of Jesus. 
We say as a church that part of our vision, part of what we want God to do, what we believe he's calling us to do, is to be a growing movement of transformed people reshaping the culture. So we want to reach our community with the claims of Christ and see people come to know him. But I'm not sure we're always that good at it. 80% of believers will tell you that it's their responsibility to share Jesus with others. But if you ask them how, if they've done that in the last six months, more than 60% will tell you that they haven't. Um, so we live in this, this tension. We, we know we need to share the gospel, but we uh, sometimes cave to the pressure or the lack of opportunity or just our own laziness and we don't do it as well as we should. I think we need to take some lessons from the Apostle Paul. So we're gonna do that this morning. We have jumped back into the book of 1 Corinthians. Larry kicked that off last week. We've been looking at chapter nine. Larry talked last week about Paul's willingness to give up his his rights for the sake of the gospel, his right even to to make a living. Uh, Paul became an itinerant preacher. In other words, he had another job. He made tents because he didn't want himself charging for his services to be an obstacle, even though he had the right to do that. Uh, I mean, Paul just had this singular focus on doing whatever it takes other than sin to advance the gospel. I mean, he would do anything and that just consumed him. But I I want us to dig a little deeper this morning. We're going to look at chapter nine, begin with verse 19 and, and do two things that relate to this issue of evangelism that I think we need to listen to very carefully. One has to do with Paul's strategy how he went about sharing the gospel in a way that was so effective and transformative for the people he was around. And then two, I want us to look at his passion. What was the motivation behind Paul's strategy and efforts and life? Um, And both are are really important to us and I think will be really informative. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9 The question is, how do we become more effective at evangelism, Um, sharing the gospel? And the first is a great strategy. Let's look at uh, verses 19 through 23. Paul writes, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now, we read over that really quickly, and I don't think we grasp how radical this statement is for Paul. Uh, When you became a slave in that culture, it was known as social death, because when you became a slave, you gave up your complete identity. In a sense, you became a surrogate body for your slave owner. You became a nothing. And Paul is saying, look, I'm totally free. I'm a slave to Christ, so nobody has any claims on me. But you know what? I will give up my freedom. I will, in a sense, commit social suicide to serve others for the sake of the gospel. Give it all up so I can win as many as possible. A radical idea. I I mean, this is total commitment. So he then begins to explain. He's going to give us four examples of what he means by this. He says, to the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. In other words, he's saying, 
When I'm working with Jewish people, I, I become kosher, you know? Uh, I eat matzah soup. I, I keep the Sabbath. Uh, I obey the dietary restrictions. I go to the temple. I participate in the festivals. I become kosher in every way because I don't want me not being kosher to become a barrier to them hearing the gospel. Now, I want to chase a bunny trail that I found fascinating about this. Let me illustrate here. I want you to pick one word. What's the one word you would use to describe your identity, who you are? Got that? Tell your neighbor what that word is. For Paul, before he was a believer in Jesus Christ, that one word would have been Jew, right? That was his whole world, his whole life. He becomes a believer and that word changes. I think if you ask Paul, he would say he, he, he was a Christ one, a Christian, a Christ follower. Now, what is fascinating is that his identity has shifted so much that his new identity, uh, his, him being a new creation has taken up so much of how he perceives himself that being a Jew is no, no longer even considered, no longer on the table. It's just pushed out. You say, Nick, how do you know that? Because he says, now, when I, when, when I go and work with Jewish people, you know what? I have to become a Jew. And you said, well, Paul, aren't you a Jew? He said, no, I'm a Christ one. So now I have to become a Jew. He doesn't even think, he doesn't think of himself as a Jewish Christian or a Christian who happens to be a Jew. His whole identity, his fundamental, the core of him has changed and it's just taken up all of him. So he no longer identifies with all these other descriptors. What's the word used for you? I, I was thinking, how much does my identification, my identity reside in Jesus and my faith? And how do I think of myself? And you know, I have all these kinds of descriptors that describe me, we all do. I'm, I'm an American, I'm an Italian American, I'm white. You know, even use, uh, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican or I'm a Libertarian. You know, or I'm a Baptist, or I, you know, none of that was even on the table for Paul. You know, Paul was a Roman citizen, doesn't even register. In fact, in Philippians, when he talks about his citizenship, you know how he saw his citizenship? I'm a citizen of heaven. He transcended all the categories. And I think part of the reason he did that is he had a singular allegiance and he understood that that singular allegiance is what bound him to all other believers. So that there was, he's later on in this book going to talk about the unity of the body and that unity ultimately is found in this being baptized into one body into this identity that you're now a Christ one, a new creation in Christ. And that's it. And it's not that all those other descriptors are secondary, it's that for Paul, they don't even exist. It's a different way of thinking about ourselves and transcending all the categories that we're pushed into by our culture. 
And it results in this phenomenal unity. It results in a different way of seeing yourself and seeing yourself in the world. Because now the thing you're about is being a Christ one. And that's it. It's interesting to me. So Paul says, well, now when I'm in the Jews, oh yeah, I gotta become like a Jew. Don't see myself like a Jew because I'm a Christ one, but I'll, I'll become like a Jew. I'll eat kosher. I'll do all the kosher stuff so they can hear the gospel. Then he says to those under the law, I become like one under the law. There were some who were Jews by birth and heritage. There were others who were Jews by choice. They were proselytes. They, they converted to Judaism. So they placed themselves under the law. And Paul is saying, you know, when I'm around those people, Gentiles who had become Jews, proselytes, I, I keep the law. And then he explains, though I myself am not under the law. He said, you know, I, I don't have to keep the law for my salvation. It's not improving me in my, my relationship with God. I, I don't do it for spiritual reasons. I do it for evangelistic reasons. I become kosher. So I to win those in the law. And then he says, to those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. What's he talking? So when he says, I, when I'm around Gentiles who aren't under the law, I become a Gentile. I mean, uh, 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 you know, I go to Chipotle and eat there instead of eating matzah. I, I just fit in. I don't keep the Sabbath. I, I don't do any of that religious Jewish stuff when I'm around the Gentiles because I, I'm gonna become like them. And then he adds this. He says, I, I become like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. We'll come back at that. In other words, he doesn't say, now I can just live any way. He's still bound by the laws of compassion and the laws of Christ. So as to win those not having the law. And then he says this. To the, to the weak, I become weak to win the weak. And he's going back to what he's talked about earlier in 1 Corinthians about meat sacrificed to idols and those who are weak in conscience. Because some people thought if you ate meat sacrificed to idols, you were committing idolatry. And Paul says, you know, when I, I work with those people and, and they're kind of immature, I, I observe, you know, I give in to their, their conscience. So I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. I'll give up that right, even though I don't agree with them because that's not the issue. Them knowing Jesus and growing in Jesus, that's the issue. So Paul says, look, I'm sacrificing my rights. Um, I, he says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share it in its blessings. So the, Paul's strategy is pretty simple. It's simply to adapt and engage. I'm gonna become like the people I'm trying to reach in order that they might hear the truths of the gospel. I'm going to adapt and engage. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a chameleon. You know what a chameleon does? Vivi told me this was a cute chameleon. I think it's kind of an ugly chameleon. <laughs> Chameleons are amazing, though, because they can change their color to blend into their surroundings. And Paul's like a chameleon in a good sense because what he's, what he's doing, it, it, there's a whole uh, area of study around 
change and how you go into cultures and get them to adopt innovation or adopt changes. And this principle that Paul is identifying as adapt and engage is really, they label it homophily. And what the literature says is when you go into a culture and you want them to change a particular behavior, you adapt to all the other behaviors that they have except for the one you want them to change. You become like them in every way except in the, the one thing you want them to change. And that, because that's how, then all those secondary issues don't become issues and they see the difference that the change you want to bring about would make in their lives and so they're much more open to the innovation, homophily. And Paul has figured this out. He says, so, so, you know, if I'm not Jewish when I'm around the Jews, all those secondary things are going to become issues. So I just act like a Jew. I'm not being inauthentic. I'm just saying I can live that way because it doesn't matter. But here's the thing I want you to hear is Jesus. And then when these Gentiles, you know, I'm not kosher. I don't want those to become issues. I'm going to live like you live, dress like you dress. I'm going to fit in so that you can see what it would be like to be a Christ one as a Gentile. It's the principle of homophily. Um, we, we, we get this, I think, on different levels. Uh, as a missionary strategy. Let me give you an example. Imagine that, that you become a missionary and you have the assignment to go to Gofron. Gofron is the nation you're assigned to and you gotta win Gofron for Jesus. What would you do? What would your missionary strategy be? Just shout out things. What would you do if you gotta go to, you gotta win Gofron for Christ? You what? You do research, but what would you research? The culture, you, everything, the culture. You'd want to find out what they value, how they think, what they, okay? So you'd research their culture. What else would you do? Language. You'd learn the language, yeah, because if you're going to, yeah. you'd learn gofronese, right? Whatever it is. You got to, because you got to communicate, that can't be a barrier. To learn the culture, to learn the language, what else would you do? Pray. Well, yeah, you would pray, because <laughs> it's a spiritual thing. How they eat, what their diet, you, and you learn to eat what they eat? What else? Fundamental one we're missing here. Would you visit? No, you, you'd do more than visit. You'd live there, right? Because if you stay here where it's nice and comfortable and you don't go there, it ain't gonna work. You, you'd go there. You'd move into the neighborhood called incarnation, right? We've talked about that. So in all these ways, you'd become like that. How about music? Would you, right? That's part of their culture. You'd learn their music. You, you, you'd learn their rituals. You, you would learn everything about them and you'd adapt. It's just missionary strategy. Now it's interesting, missionaries have, have wrestled with this, okay? Because a lot of times when the missionary movement started, missionaries would go as Western missionaries into foreign cultures and they'd set up their little compound and they'd live separate from the people they were trying to reach. And in their compound, they would be very Western. They'd dress Western, they'd speak Western. They'd, you know, and, and it wasn't always that effective. Then a guy, Hudson Taylor, comes along, China Inland Mission, 
goes to China and he figures this strategy out about homophily and adapting and engaging. So you know what Hudson does? He begins to dress like the Chinese and he grows his hair long and he puts it in a braid and he learns their language. He begins to eat their food and he begins to live in their midst. And all the other missionaries are going, uh, they're really getting on his case. But they shouldn't because he just understands adapt and engage. It's why Paul was so effective. He's able to say, hey, this is important. This is not on the unimportant things. I'll adapt to be effective. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means, you know, in your neighborhood, how do you adapt and engage? Well, if your neighbors like to bowl, take up bowling. They like to knit, take up knitting. They're huge football fans. Start watching football. Well, I don't like football. That's the point. If you don't like it, watch it anyway because the, reaching them is more important than your rights and your preferences. Right? It's a pretty simple strategy. You adapt and engage. Now, now we get that when it comes to missionaries overseas. We, we get it when it comes to our neighborhood. We don't always get it when it comes to church. You see, the culture we live in used to be a Christian culture, so we were able to set up church and kind of, because people had Christian roots, we could do our thing and we could expect them to come to us. And we, we, didn't, we weren't explicit about this, but what we said, when I first became a Christian, this was the model. What we said is you, you come to us and you become like us. You dress like us, you talk like us, you value what we value, you adopt our culture, you adopt our rituals, you learn our music, and, and we'll let you come. When I first became a Christian, the church I went to was exactly that way. They were 25 years behind the culture. And for me to become part of it, and I couldn't wear long hair, because that was taboo, my, my sister, when she came, had to wear a dress, which she didn't very often anyway. You know, I, I had to learn their language and their rituals, and we sang this weird music that I really had never heard before in my life. But it was the expectation, become like us and you can come be a part of us. And we, we turned the principle upside down. Because Paul was saying, no, you become like them so you can reach them. And we're out there saying, no, you become like us and we'll let you in. And we miss it. Uh, see, folks, we, can no we no longer live in a Christianized world. It's not only postmodern, it's post-Christian. So now we have to see the church as a mission post. And we have to figure out our culture and we gotta become like them so that they can hear the gospel in as many ways as possible. A friend of mine named Michael Elkelkamp is a pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church. It's right there on the east side of Washington Park. It was one of the first churches in Denver 125 years old. He came there in 2003 and it was a dying, uh, dead church. And Michael wanted to turn it around. Um, so after being there a couple years, he decided to move their 930 service, which was very traditional, very liturgical and kind of out of step with what's going on in the culture. He moved that to 745 in the morning. 
what do you think the reaction was? Oh, he had a riot on his hand, right? Uh, of 60 and 70 year olds. They were not, and 80 year olds. They were not happy. This was their church. They had paid for it. They had built it. They had given their lives for it. And this was their service. And you're moving it to 745. How, how could you do such a thing? They were not happy. They called a meeting. And Michael shows up to the meeting. And Michael will say, I, I think it was just the spirit talking to me, but, but, but I felt like I had to ask them two questions. And the first question he asked them was this, was, was how many of you are concerned that your children and your grandchildren don't have any interest in coming to church or being involved? And every hand in that room went up. I said, okay. Then he asked him this question. He says, how many of you are concerned that you will not see your children and your grandchildren in heaven? And every hand in that room went up. So Michael said, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna listen to you. And I'm gonna do what you want me to do. I'm gonna take our whole ministry and I'm gonna do everything we can in our ministry to reach your kids and your grandkids. I'm gonna change our service so it becomes something they understand. I'm gonna put it at a, a time that's convenient for your kids and your grandkids to come to. I'm gonna make the music something that they can relate to. I'm gonna use language that, that, that not only they can understand but will touch them and talk about issues that'll make a difference in their lives. Because I'm listening to you. I'm going to do what you want me to do, which is figure out how to reach your kids and your grandkids for Christ. And then he said this, he said, I know, I know you really care about your kids, but here's the promise I'll make to you as well. Because this was a room of 70 and 80 years old and their kids, he basically was saying, I'm gonna gear my ministry for anybody under 40, all right? He said, but I will make you this promise. When you get sick, I will come and visit you and care for you. And when you die, I will make sure you are buried well. But beyond that, all the rest of my time and energy and the, the structure of our ministry is going to be geared towards reaching your kids and their grandkids because that's what you told me to do. They didn't have anything to say. He was a little manipulative, but he was right on. And, and after the meeting, the matriarch of the church, this was a gal in her 70s, very old, but the power broker comes to him and she says, I'm with you. I don't like coming at 745, but I will come at 745 so my kids and my grandkids can hear about Jesus and hear the gospel at 930. They got it. They finally understood that church wasn't about them. It was about the people they were trying to reach and how they were going to help them understand and live out the gospel. And Michael has done a phenomenal job. This dying church has turned around, it's growing. They have an incredible preschool. They're maxed out at two services. I was sharing this story last night and somebody came up after me, a gal named Diane who used to go to St. John's and then moved out here 
comes to Waterstone. She said, I was talking to my friends. You know what Michael's doing now? He, he's asking all the millennials in their church to come meet with him. Because he's trying to figure out what is it going to take to reach the next generation. See, folks, we come to church and we think it's about us. And it's not. Paul never thought his ministry was about him. It was always about the people he wanted to reach. And he was always trying to be strategic. What do I have to do to reach them? And it's really not about my preferences or my likes. And that's the challenge for us as a church. I mean, we try to adapt to our culture. I mean, theater, seating, music, dark lights, loud, all the junk. Who cares? It's totally irrelevant, except if it is more effective in us reaching our culture, then let's do it because that's the point. Become all things to all people so that you reach some because it's not about us. And that means that, that we will always be a bit uncomfortable because we come to Jesus at a certain point in our lives and that we become nostalgic about that and we like that and that speaks to us and that's our thing. And then, dang it, the culture changes and we get locked in and we don't like to change because it makes us uncomfortable. Man, I, my kids are millennials. I am always freaking scratching my head and thinking, what is with you guys? And then I'm thinking, okay, what do we got to do as a church? Because here's the thing, the culture's always changing. That means we need to always be changing. And none of us are going to like that. But if we live out Paul's strategy, we have to do it. I didn't hear any amens. Amen. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. She said, well, Nick, does that just mean we throw out everything? We just become worldly, just adapt to the culture, just, no. There, there's some things we don't change, okay? To, let me give you two of them. Number one, we don't change the message of the gospel, right? The gospel is that we're broken, sinful, alienated from God and under his wrath. Jesus came as a substitutionary atonement, as someone who came to take our place and die for our sin so that we can be back in a relationship with God. And we come into that relationship with him through uh, this faith commitment uh, where we, we, we repent, change our mind about our lifestyle and who Jesus is and exercise trust in him. That's the gospel. And that does not change. I was talking to a friend of mine who has been wrestling with the notion of the gospel, especially as how it's getting expressed in our culture because lots of large churches are under this pressure to see more and more people come and more and more people baptized. And his comment was, you know, the temptation is to water down, shrink, truncate the gospel message is to make it more palatable so people will respond. And he says, well, what I see happening sometimes is we're presenting Jesus, not as Savior and Lord, but, but oftentimes we present him as friend and solution. So we tell people, you know, if you're lonely, come to Jesus because he'll take away your loneliness. Or if your marriage is struggling, come to Jesus and he'll fix your marriage. Or if you're in financial trouble, come to Jesus. He, he'll, he'll help you get your finances. Now, Jesus may do all of those, but understand this, none of those are the gospel. 
And if we sell that, Jesus is the solution to your problem and you want him, raise your hand, come down the aisle. They haven't heard the gospel. We haven't told them, look, your fundamental problem isn't that you're lonely. It's not that you're in financial difficulty. It's not that you're addicted. Your fundamental problem is that you're a sinner and have a broken relationship with the God of the universe and are under his wrath and judgment. Unless you do something. That's why you come to Jesus. And when you come to him, you gotta repent. Change your mind and your life. One of our elders was talking to a pastor who had worked in the large church and he baptized hundreds and hundreds of people. And he, he said to our elder, you know what I'm scared of is that if I go to those people now, not, none of them will know who Jesus is. Because we really didn't tell them the gospel. And when we, don't, when we shrink the gospel, when we water it down and we present Jesus simply as the solution not the Savior and Lord, we inoculate people to the truth. They get a little bit of Jesus and figure out, oh, this doesn't really work the way I wanted it to. You know, he didn't fix my life. And they push him away because they never understood what he was all about in the first place. So we can take the gospel and dress it up and communicate it in all kinds of creative ways, but we have to communicate the gospel and that cannot change. Second, there are certain moral standards we don't give in on. You know, what you find as the law of Christ. You, you don't become an alcoholic to reach the addicted. You don't become a criminal to reach the mob. You don't become a racist to reach the Ku Klux Klan. You don't become a materials to reach the rich. You, you, you know, there, there's boundaries. And, and quite honestly, those boundaries reside primarily around the issues of compassion. What does God tell us in Micah chapter six? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. That's what he requires. So, so we don't give up on justice. We don't give up on mercy. We don't give up on loving the unlovable. That's our heartbeat. And we, we keep the moral standards that we see in the gospel. We don't cave to reach a broken culture but we go into that culture and try to live differently with love and compassion. Strategy. So Paul not only has this great strategy, but second of all, he has this great passion. When you look at the life of Paul, it's just amazing. I mean, that, that guy gets stoned, he gets whipped, <laughs> he, 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 he is shipwrecked, he's flogged, uh, um, he, he just is abused all through his ministry, but he keeps at it. And, and then even here, I mean, he gives up his, his, his rights to eat what he wants to eat. He gives up his right to make a living. He gives up his right to, to live the way he wants to live. You've you got to ask your question, what, what motivates this guy? And he tells us. He has this incredible, great passion. Look at uh, verses 24 through 27. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. I like the, that phrase, strict training. It, it, it is uh, literally the word ego and rule. The athlete rules his ego. He rules his life. He exercises self-control. 
discipline. They do that. And he uses two images here. He, he uses the images of, of a runner. And his image of a runner is not, you know, some fat business guy running on a treadmill. His image of a runner is some guy who's in this marathon and he's got a hundred yards to go and he's in this competition and he's given all he's got, everything left in him to get to the finish line first. I mean, it's that kind of motivation and drive. And then he gives an image of a boxer and the boxer isn't beating the air. He's in the ring and he has this opponent and he's trying to make sure that every blow hits the right spot. And he says, Paul's saying, that's how I live the Christian life. And just as an athlete disciplines themselves, controls what they do and how they live. So I do for the sake of the gospel. Now this passage is really interesting to me because it it really gets to the issue of self-control and living a disciplined life and living in an obedient way so that people watching can see the gospel lived out and see it lived out in a consistent way. And it raises the question, how, how, what is the key to that kind of discipline? What is the key to that kind of self-control? And I think what we oftentimes say in our culture that the key to that self-control and that kind of discipline and that kind of obedience and that kind of consistency is just willpower, right? If we just have enough willpower to control ourselves, we'll do it. And part of the reason that is, is because we have a Greek heritage and in the Greek heritage, the mind and the will are so superior to the emotions. That's not really a biblical worldview. In a biblical worldview, the mind, the will, and the emotions, they're all part of God's image in us. God, God has emotions. He loves, he gets angry, he's jealous. He has emotions. And those are just as important as his mind and his will. And the reality is because we're in God's image, all of those things, our mind, will, emotions are fallen, tainted by sin. But we bring that Greek worldview into our Christian life and we think, okay, we'll use our mind and our will and we'll just clamp down on our emotions so that we live the way we should. And then we figure out, you know, that doesn't really work too well. Because none of us have enough willpower to do that consistently. And it misses the point. Paul gives us the key to self-control here and living obediently and living consistently. And uh, I mean, he really does. He's, notice how severe he is. Verse 27, he says, no, I strike a blow to my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for a prize. He said, I mean, I really do discipline myself, but it's not because of my self-control and my willpower. Here's the key. Why does the athlete, how is the athlete the boxer and the runner able to exercise such self-control because their focus is always on the prize, right? What's the prize? In the Olympic Games, the prize was that laurel wreath, this little thing. Pretty sad, isn't it? But they understood that with that little laurel wreath, uh, came all kinds of recognition, all kinds of honor, all kinds of prestige. All the people that mattered to them, that mattered too. That was the goal. 
And you see, it was their, their pursuit of the prize, their focus on the prize that allowed them to exercise self-control, that allowed them to train, that allowed them to work hard, to strain. You see, their self-control and their obedience to their training was simply a result of a focus on the prize. And Paul says that. He says, you know, that their prize is something that perishes. I mean, you win that, it wilts. But our prize is imperishable, eternal. It's the prize that matters. Let me give you an illustration. Genesis 29, you remember the story of Jacob and Rachel? Jacob falls in love with Rachel, wants to marry her, but Laban, her dad, says, uh, if you want Rachel, you have to work for me for seven years. And the text in Genesis 29 says something very interesting. It says Jacob worked for Rachel for seven, to get Rachel for seven years, but it seemed like him for only a few days because he loved Rachel. Now think what it was like to work for Laban for seven years. I mean, every morning he had to get up on time. He had to go out in the heat of the day and take care of the sheep and the goats and water them. And it was tedious and it was long days and hard work for seven years. But it just seemed like a few days. Why? Because of the prize. Man, Rachel was worth it. You know, he didn't have to use his willpower to get up in the morning and go do the work and... Now it just came easy to him because, man, all he thought about was Rachel. She was worth it. You see, that's the key. If you have kids, teenagers, have you ever tried to get them to be punctual? Yeah, it's impossible. They can't even spell the word, let alone practice the discipline. You know, showing up on time. Grandmother's going to be here at two o'clock. They're not there at two o'clock. We're going to leave it. They're not. It, it's, get up at this. It doesn't happen. <laughs> then your kids leave. They go to college and they get this first job. And if, if this first job is their career passionate, if it's the thing they want and they want to be really, really successful in their career, do you know what happens? They become punctual, Right? They get up on time. They show up at meetings on time. They work long hours. Why? Did they just suddenly get a dose of willpower? No, it's because they have the prize, the career. That becomes the center, the focus, the thing they want. And they'll do whatever it takes to get that. And if it means being on time, they can even be on time. It has nothing to do with willpower. It has everything to do with the goal, the prize, the focus. That's Paul. You know why he has such a passion? It's because of the prize. Verse 23, he says this. I can do all this. Why? For the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessing. The word for share is koinonia, that I may share in fellowship in its blessings and it's the idea with others. 
It's the gospel. It's this fact that this, this God of the universe loves him unconditionally, has, has stepped in and died for him and, and made his life meaningful. It's the gospel that has transformed him. And he's so passionate about it that that begins to consume his life. It becomes the focal point. And, and because he's after living out the gospel consistently and with this huge desire not only to live it out for himself, but to live it out in a way that others are attracted to it. It's not an issue of self-control. He beats his body. He, he gives up his rights. He, he, he sacrifices. He, he keeps at it because of the gospel, because it's at the center of everything he does. It's not his willpower. His willpower comes because of his focus on the gospel. You see, I, I think this is the challenge for us, to be quite honest. I think, you know, if you're here this morning, you, you have a relationship with Jesus. He's part of your life, most likely. But we struggle. And I think one of the reasons we struggle to be disciplined and to be obedient and to live consistently and to share the gospel and to do all those things is because Jesus is in our life, but he's not the passion of our life. We get busy, we get caught up, we get, you know, life takes over and he gets moved to the side. So what we do, we, we try to manage everything. We try to manage our sin and manage our obedience and, and because passion isn't driving us, we, we, we rely on our willpower to do it and it just doesn't work very well. Came across this image that I think gets it. It's a magnet in the middle of the iron filings. And I was thinking, you know, when, when the gospel and our relationship with Jesus is at the center of our life and the passion of our life, you know what happens? Everything else lines up because we're after him. Because we're after him and when he's in the center, man, every, the problem is when he grows distance, when he's taken out of the center, everything goes to chaos. The issue in the Christian life is not being more self-disciplined and exercising more willpower. The issue is becoming passionate about Jesus. Because when you're passionate about him, the gospel, and it's, it's what life is about, and he's the center, and he's your identity, and nothing else matters, and that's how you see yourself, everything lines I'm gonna give you a minute just to bow your heads and to ask yourself this question, what is at the center of my life? I want you to wrestle with that a bit and then Billy and the band's gonna come and we'll close our service.